If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 1, and this morning we're looking at a part 2 of a sermon that I started last week called The Purpose of the Gospel, and this morning we're going to look at the part 2, verses 6 and 7 from Romans 1, 5 through 7. So again, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. We're looking at 5 through 7 is the greater picture this morning. Specifically, we're looking at just verses 6 and 7. But thanks for turning there with me, if you will. Let me read what uh, God's Word says in this passage, and then we'll jump into our time here together this morning. So Romans chapter 1, 5 through 7 states this. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of being able to be in your word and to open up the scriptures and to hear uh, from you this morning as you're living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that the scripture is alive because Christ is alive and the, the word was with God, the word was God in the beginning and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. But God, I pray as we look at this passage this morning that you would encourage us, you would challenge us and clarify your truth to us through this passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to start off this morning a little bit where we left off last week, since this is a kind of a part one, part two message. And I mentioned at the end of last, uh, last week's message about how I had attended a passion conference in Austin, Texas back in 1997, where I first heard John Piper uh, preach. And he asked this question, which I couldn't uh, ever forget. You remember last week I talked about how he said, did God send Jesus to die on the cross for you? Or did God send Jesus to die on the cross for God? And when I first heard that question, I thought to myself, what in the world is he talking about? Of course God sent Jesus to die for me. I'm a lost, dying sinner. And yet he said, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for God. And the whole point behind that is the idea is that God does what he does for his own glory over everything else. And we saw that from Romans 1 verse 5 where he talked about not only had Paul been called through grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. And we looked at that last part again in verse 5. It was for the sake of his name. Right? That God did what he did for the sake of his own name. He didn't ultimately do what he does for you. And sending Jesus to die on the cross, he ultimately does and did what he did for his own namesake, for his own glory, for his own renown. As Romans eleven thirty six says that from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. And so we're learning that God must exalt his own name over every person and over every plan. And over every purpose that exists in earth or nothing worthwhile will ever be accomplished. Remember, God said in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Again, in Isaiah 48, verse 11, he says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, how 
For how would my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So again and again, over and over in scripture, God's saying he does what he does for his own glory. So with that in mind, this morning, we're gonna look at what it means to be loved by God, what it means to be called by God, verse six, and then verse seven, what it means to be loved by God. And so I wanna offer you a test this morning to see where you are in your understanding of all of this, this great view of a grand God whose purposes are over everything else. And so from last week's sermon to this week's sermon, let me offer you a test. And this test is offered by John Piper. Okay, are you, are you ready? Just one question to see whether or not you know what it means to be loved by God. Whether or not you know what it is to experience the love of God in your life. I mean, there's a whole lot of Christians today who have no idea what it really means. People have told you in a thousand ways that to be loved by God is for him to make much of you. Some of us can't even conceive another definition of God's love for us than the fact that he must be making much of us. It goes something like this, God loves me and that must mean that he makes much of me and he somehow adores me And he's somewhat enamored with me and attracted to and consumed with who I am. Now, here's the test. Are you ready? With that in mind, here's the test. Do you feel more loved by God when he makes much of you or when he, at the cost of his son's life, gives you the ability to enjoy making much of him? I'm going to state the the question again, and you answer this in your own mind. Do you feel more loved by God when he makes much of you, or do you feel more loved by God when he undertakes the sacrifice through sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross to enable you to experience a kind of inner transformation that you enjoy to a greater degree by making much of him? I'll say it one more time as simply as I can. Okay, ready? Do you feel more loved by God when he adores you or when he, through the cross, enables you to adore him? Which one is more loving? That's the question. And many Christians don't understand this question because they're so self-focused and are overly psychologized, overly self-esteem focused, overly I must love myself first kind of world. Many in our generation have failed this test question. Now in the broader evangelical world, our world is just surly with this mentality that God loves me above all else, right? Many are still writing the wrong books and delivering the wrong sermons and offering the wrong message to this generation. And that message is, it's all about me. And it's all about my worth. And it's all about my value. And we somehow stand before the cross of almighty God and take it as an echo of my worth instead of an echo of the horror that God determined to punish our sin on the cross. Now, you are loved by God, make no doubt about it, but is that love more about looking to you or more about changing you? Is it more about honoring you or is it more about transforming you? 
Is it more about focusing on you as the object or is it more about fixing what's wrong with you through the cross? And in our text this morning, we'll continue to see how Paul was on a mission to glorify God among the nations. And Paul was making sure that the believers in Rome understood that God had called them from eternity past. And Paul wanted to make sure that the believers there in Rome knew that they were loved by God and called to be saints who belong to Jesus Christ. And this was all done for the sake of his name. And so we're looking at three headings from these three verses, five, six, and seven, to help us better understand the purpose of the gospel. And last week we covered number one, the substantial intent of the gospel to glorify God among all the nations. And so this week we'll look at number two, the specific inclusion of the gospel to save those called from eternity past. And then number three, the successful impact of the gospel to radically transform People. So last week, again, number one, the substantial intent of the gospel to glorify God among all nations. And we talked about from verse five what Paul was writing about when he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And I argue that he's using the editorial we, referring to himself receiving God's grace in his own saving testimony and a special calling to be an apostle with a capital A that those two things are connected. He received grace and apostleship. And then we looked last week also about the obedience of faith. While Paul had a special calling to be an apostle, all of us are recipients of grace. And if so, then we have a responsibility to obey in faith. We talked about, again, the obedience of faith, that faith works. Those who've truly been saved by faith will be actively living out their life for him in obedience. And then we ended last week, again, this is all done for the sake of his name, the end of verse 5, among all the nations. Remember Isaiah, uh, I mean, uh, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted in the nations and in the earth. And that we don't serve an American Christianity God. We serve the God over all, who will be glorified over all. And so now this week, we're looking at number two, our second heading that's there in your outline. The specific inclusion of the gospel was to save those called from eternity past. Verse six, your next blank, if you are taking notes, simply says the effective call. The effective call, and we're going to juxtapose that to another kind of calling here in a minute. But first, we need to see that in verse 6, when he says, including you who are called, we're defining what Paul meant and who he was referring to when he says to you who are called. So let me just remind ourselves where we are in our context. Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and he began this letter by identifying himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, and he had been called to be an apostle. And now here in verse 6, Paul is telling the believers in Rome that they too have been called not to be an apostle, but rather to be a Christian to be those who are loved by God. And Paul's addressing the Roman believers here and affirming that God's call did include them, that this call includes all who belong to Christ. And so what we're seeing here, let me give you just three characteristics, if I can, of the effective call, okay? Number one, this is a calling that is particular. This is a calling which is a particular call for the elect, This calling is specifically an act of God, the Father. He is the one ultimately at work calling us to himself from eternity past into his presence 
at the point of our conversion. And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 6 when he's writing to believers in Rome, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. We're saying this is a particular calling for a particular group of people who are known as the elect. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Romans 8. So we can see this a little bit more clearly. We're doing a, you know, we're, we're taking our time in Romans and we'll be exploring these themes and these uh, passages together throughout our study. But in Romans 8, you know, verse 28 and then verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the specific word we're looking at. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so here in Romans 8, 29 and 30, Paul is pointing to a definite order in the way in which God calls us. Long ago, before the foundation of the world, God predestined us to be his children and to be conformed into the image of his son. Verse 29. And the actual outworking of that in our lives is when he calls us unto himself by grace through faith. And that's in Romans 8.30, the verse that we're looking at. Paul immediately lists justification and glorification showing that these two great doctrines come after our calling. So God first foreknew, he then predestined, he then called, he then justified, and then God glorified. That would be the order that we see in verses 28, or 29 and 20, 30. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And please note that all of these are acts of God. Not a single act of verse 29 or verse 30 is an act of man. You don't foreknow yourself. You didn't predestine yourself. You don't call yourself. You didn't justify yourself. You will never be able to glorify yourself. It is God who predetermines people to be conformed into the image of his son. We see the same thing in Ephesians 1. Turn over there with me, if you will. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, because we see this happens from eternity past. The calling comes before the saving faith. Ephesians chapter 1 says in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, verse 5, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So here in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, we're saying that God called us even before he created the world. And he called us to be holy and blameless before him. He called us and then he predestined us and adopted us as sons through Christ. And this was all done according to the purpose of not our will, but according to his will. One other place, and then I'll maybe summarize our thoughts together here, is 2 Timothy. Turn there with me, if you will. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Again, we see the particular call for the elect. 2 Timothy 1, 9, where we read, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, 
not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again, God saved every believer because of his own purpose and by his own grace. And he didn't save us because of our works or because of our intellect or because of our own good looks. Some of you might think you look better than others. You're all looking good, all right? You're all looking good. But he doesn't save us based on something we do or something we say. He didn't save us because we deserved it or because we've earned it or because we decided that we wanted it. The Bible says it's while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us to send Christ to die for us. And so this salvation and this calling was something that God gave us in Christ before the ages began. This is not God waiting and watching for our response to the gospel. That would be kind of the Arminian position that God created us and now he's kind of waiting and watching us to see what he's going to do in response to our initiative. This, this is not God betting on us like you might be tempted to bet on the Super Bowl. Okay, are you going to bet on the Niners or the Chiefs? Well, you shouldn't bet at all, right? But if you were, no, I'm just kidding. You know, it's like we don't know what's going to happen. So you, you wouldn't want to waste your money on a bet when you don't really know. I mean, this could be 50-50, right? But God's not like that. God knows exactly what's going to happen because he foreknows and he predestines and he calls and he justifies and he glorifies. So God knows what's going to happen in your life. And he knows that he's going to call you, if you're part of the called, into a relationship with him through the gospel by giving us a new heart and granting us repentance and faith and then setting us apart to live our lives for him. And that's the second characteristic of the effective call. Not only is it particular to the elect, but secondly, your next blank says this calling is an internal call for your soul. Here, here I'm just trying to emphasize that this is something that takes place in your heart. This is not just some external doctrine that theologians talk about. This is something that happened to you. This calling is emphasizing it's something that God does in you. It's not a choice that you make. It's not a promise that you keep. It's not an effort that you exert. This calling is similar to the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration being the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit of granting spiritual life to each Christian, raising them from the dead so that they are, they are uh, able to repent uh, and trust in him as a new creation. That's what God does, right? We're not able to do that, but he makes that possible by regenerating us. This is what Jesus taught when he's interacting with Nicodemus in John chapter three, verses five through six, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he goes on to talk about, look, you, you don't know where the wind comes from or where it goes. He just does what he does. And that's what God does in salvation. And I think when Jesus is even mentioning this, he's probably echoing the imagery from the prophet Ezekiel, who said that the Lord would, in Ezekiel 36, 26, give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. So this calling is not you cleansing the outside of the cup, as Jesus so pointedly confronted the Pharisees. Remember, he said, hey, it's not about the outside. What about the inside of the cup? This, this calling is not like some whitewashed tomb 
This calling is not about those who come near to God with their mouths and they honor him with their lips, but their hearts, Isaiah 29, 13, are far from him. We're not talking about a coat of paint. We're not talking about something that's plated with gold. At this point, we're not talking about some outer covering or some building. We're not talking about um, you needing some more plaster on the walls or need some type of renovation or makeover. No, no, we're, we're talking about being made new. We're talking about new construction. We're talking about a new heart and a new soul and your inner man being totally born again. We're talking about that new start that leads to a new life that's from new wine in a new wineskin. This is something totally new. This is new life. This is what God does. So the effective call is particular for the elect. It's an internal call for your heart, your soul. And then number three, there in your outline, your next blank, this calling is always effective. This is an irresistible effect. This is a certain transformation. This is 100% effective, 100% successful, and 100% definite change in your life. This effective call is unquestionable. It is unequivocal, and it is undeniable. The effective call is irrefutable, it's indisputable, and it's irrevocable. No one could ever resist this calling And the good news is no one would ever want to. If you're truly called in Christ, you would not want to resist the calling of God. Here we're talking about the doctrine of irresistible grace, the belief that when God chooses to move in the lives of his elect and bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life, no power in heaven or on earth can stop him from doing so. Now, again, you might say, well, wait a second. I know people who resist, and I used to resist. And you might be thinking that you could resist for a moment, and you could resist for a year. You might even resist for the majority of your lifetime. But if God has elected you from eternity past, then he will bring you into an understanding of your need for Christ and the beauty of the gospel, and then he'll change you to where you come to Christ, not reluctantly, but willingly. You can't do it otherwise. He's got to do it in you, but he's going to give you the want to. I'm, I'm talking about John 6, Turn over there with me, if you will. This is a key verse when discussing this topic of the call of God in someone's life being 100% effective being something that is always going to come to completion. And Jesus says it this way in John 6, 44. You'll you'll recognize this passage. I'm sure you've debated it yourself in your own heart and mind and maybe with others. But John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Pretty clear? Jesus said, hey, nobody can come. Not, Not a single person on the planet can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And if that happens, then I'm gonna save him and I will raise him up on that last day. So the debate around this verse is obviously on the word draw. What does Jesus mean when he says, unless the father who sent me draws him? No one can come unless the father draws him. So what exactly does this mean? And in order to do that, you need to do a lexical study looking at, specific dictionaries of the original language, and then you need to do a textual study, a word study, looking at this word used in different texts. So let's just do that real quick, can we? Just for a couple minutes, 
The best lexicon in the Greek language used primarily today would probably be bedag, and bedag refers to the word draw here, and it says it means to move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion. To move an object from one area to another area in a pulling motion. According to another lexicon, Lou and Nida, it means to drag or pull by force. The NAS lexicon means to drag. The UBS lexicon means to draw, to drag, or to haul in. So again, the question is, is it to draw something or is it to drag something? Is it to woo something or to win something by force? Is it contingent, is this word and this idea behind draw, is it contingent on the will of the one being drawn or dragged, or is it contingent on the will of the drawer or the dragger? And I believe my answer to that question would be to be drawn is to be dragged. And I believe this primarily not because of the lexical definitions we've used, but how it's used in other places in the New Testament. If you want to look, I've got them listed for you there. But in John chapter 21, we're already there where it says uh, in John 6, uh, it's 44. If you looked at John 21 verse 6, it's where Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. This is after the resurrection. The disciples went back fishing. And so he's up there in Galilee. Cast your net on the other right side of the boat and you'll find some. They couldn't find any fish, right? So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So it's the word haul. That's the word H-A-U-L, to haul it in. That's the word for drag, the exact same word. So the question would be, now did Peter and the disciples try to woo the fish into the net and to woo the fish into the boat or woo the fish to the shore or did they drag them? I'm not trying to be, you know, nice or mean here. I'm just like, what is the meaning of that word? Did they woo the fish when it says they drew them or did they drag the fish to shore? Listen to how the word's used in Acts 16, 19. Acts chapter 16, verse 19, same word again. But when her owners, this was a girl who was demon possessed, who had the demon cast out of her. When the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they were making money by selling little idols. And this was all now being upended by Paul's mission work. And so when they saw that her hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So what do you think? Did the officials woo Paul and Silas by Paul and Silas's own free will into the marketplace? Or is the context there pretty clear that they drug them into the marketplace? Again, the same word in Acts 21 verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him. So it's actually translated as dragged in Acts 21.30, they dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. Did they woo Paul out of the temple or did they drag him? One other place that we see there would be in James chapter 2 verse 6. James 2.6 says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Same word. Again, translated as drag. The rich were dragging the poor into court and it was condemned as someone who was taking advantage of them. That's why James is writing about that. So again, in our passage, let's go back to John 6, 44. Um, what does this word mean? 
to draw him. No one can come unto the Father, uh, come unto me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I think the understanding of this verse by so many Christians has been skewed by the analogy of God drawing sinners like drawing flies to the honey. We think of it as if we just put something out there that's so beautiful and tasty that people will just come. But I'm saying to you, they will not come and they cannot come unless the Father draws them. R.C. Sproul, maybe you've heard him talk about this word. He talks about the, the difference between wooing and dragging and he explains this analogy when he says, how do you get water out of a well? Do you stand up there and look down and say, here, water, water, water? You know, here, water, water, water? Do you woo it up? Of course not. The water is inert. You would have to go and get it. It's not able to come up on its own for you. You have to go get the water with the bucket that you draw and bring the water up. And I believe that R.C. Sproul is exactly right, that God does not woo you and then leave it up to you. He wins you by his effectual call and his irresistible grace. His grace compels you to come. His grace drags you to the cross. And once you see his love for you, you will want to come. Again, God doesn't drag anyone kicking and screaming into heaven. There'll be nobody in heaven with their arms crossed saying, well, God made me come here and I detest him for it. No, and from your perspective, you wanted to come. And the only way that you could have that want to is God gave you a new heart by regenerating you. And he gave you a new will that wanted to come from your perspective. You thought maybe it was you, but now that we're reading scripture, realize I couldn't have never done that unless he called me. And that's what the effectual call is all about. It's from eternity past. It's something that God does in our heart. It's 100% effective every single time. That is the effective call. That's the call that I think that Paul's talking about here in verse six. And again, in verse seven, when he says you're called to be saints, he's talking to a specific subset of believers in Rome that the ones that were called, that's the effectual call. And that should be compared to your next blank, just for the sake of clarity, that should be compared to the general call. The general call is a gospel invitation for all people. But the general call, it's, a, it's an external call, not an internal one. The, the general call is a call unto salvation, and yet it can be rejected. I like how Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology gives three important elements which should be included um, And when you think about the general call, which is really the preaching of the gospel. That's what the general call is, is we're to preach the gospel. And in doing that, we should make sure to keep these three elements in mind. Number one, there ought to be a clear explanation of the facts concerning salvation. So when we're giving a general call, we're, we ought to be preaching the gospel to all people. Right? We, 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 and, and when we do that, we're giving the facts of what salvation is. We, we got to make sure we under, understand and explain that God is the creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We should explain that God is holy. Isaiah 6.3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We ought to explain that we are sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We ought to explain that we deserve hell. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And then we ought to explain that Jesus died for us while we were in that condition. Romans 5.80, he demonstrates, he shows his love for us through Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We, we got to make it clear 
in the general call that Christ alone can save us by grace through faith in his propitiatory sacrifice. And we understand Jesus said again in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life that no man can come to the Father but by me. And so these are the facts concerning the gospel and the general call would go to great effort to faithfully proclaim these gospel truths. A second component of the general call would be number two, there your next blank, an invitation to respond to Christ personally in repentance and faith. Jesus said it this way in Matthew eleven twenty eight: come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And specifically, he's talking to the Old Testament Jew that was trying to get into heaven by keeping the old covenant, and they just couldn't keep it well enough. And so we say, hey, forget the old covenant. You can't get in by the law anyway. That was never the intention. It was to show you that you need faith in the saving Messiah. So now I'm here and I'm inviting you, come unto me all who labor and I will give you rest and you will find rest for your souls as a picture of salvation which can only be found in Christ. And then concerning Christ, Jesus said a little bit later after he was resurrected in Luke 24, 47, he says, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So we're saying that the gospel call is a call to repentance and it should be for all nations. That's what we call the Great Commission. That we go to all people everywhere and call them to repent. And we see Peter doing that in Acts 2, 37 and 38. They're primarily to the Jewish audience in that context when they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So we understand that that's what the calling is. The general call, it's an explanation of the facts of the gospel and it's an invitation to respond to those facts of the gospel through repentance and faith. And then the third part of the general call would be this, number three, your next blank, it's a promise of forgiveness and eternal life for all who believe. So in order to truly be born again, there is this necessity of belief. No one's denying that. We're just saying you can't believe unless God grants you this regenerating work in your heart so that now you have the gift of faith and belief, which is John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So you have to believe. Last week we talked about belief or faith has to have knowledge, has to have assent, and then there has to be trust. And if you don't have those three elements, you don't have real faith. You have to understand, you have to agree to, and then you have to trust in, meaning that you're leaning wholly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and we read about uh, the idea again of, of, of uh, believing also would include repentance. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, Acts 3.17. And then Acts 17.30, a different context to the Greeks in Rome on Mars Hill after Paul preaches the gospel he now commands all people everywhere to repent all people everywhere to repent I'm just saying the general call goes out to all the general call is the gospel preaching to everyone I can't get up here and just say I'm only preaching the effectual call and only if you're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world I'm only preaching to you no I'm preaching to everybody now God works the effectual call in the hearts of the elect and those who reject him may 
be rejecting him for a season and then eventually come, or it may be that they reject all along because they were never elected from eternity past. But I'm saying that our responsibility is not to figure all that out, at least as far as our responsibility is concerned. Our, our responsibility is to preach the gospel to everyone. The general call is an external call, not an internal call, meaning all you can do is preach it, but you can't change somebody's heart. Right? Parents, can you make your children be saved? No, you can't. Will homeschooling save them? No. Will taking them to church save them? No. Will taking them to Awana save them? No. Will being the perfect parent save them? No. That ought to be a little bit of a relief. And yet we can do all of those things, or some of those are preferences, but we got to be faithfully pointing our kids to Christ every day. But that's the external call. Only God can bring about the internal call where he saves somebody. And we need to acknowledge that the general call is often rejected. There's no guarantee that just because you were faithful to preach the gospel and call people into a relationship with Jesus, that they will indeed repent and believe the gospel. That's ultimately a work that only God can do. And he does so through the effectual call of grace in their hearts and lives in such a way that they will be radically transformed. So again, our job is to be faithful to give the general call in the preaching of the gospel. God's job is to save all of his elect. Our job is to invite people into a relationship with Jesus. God's job is to drag people to himself by giving them a new heart so they can come. Our job is to teach people of the promise of salvation and eternal life. God's job is to transform lost and dying sinners from the inside out and call them to truly belong to Jesus Christ. Our job, general call. God's job, effectual call. Got it? I believe verse 6 is talking about the effectual call. Again, the specific inclusion of the gospel to save those called from eternity past. That's verse six, ready? We're moving on. Verse seven, number three, the successful impact of the gospel is to radically transform people. Your next blank is, again, we're loved by God. Now I'm gonna connect this uh, explanation here of being loved by God with our introduction, but I wanted to specifically talk about the effectual call in the middle, because that's the way it's lined out for us in the text, but just so that those, those foreknowledge, predestining acts of God that you were able to, hopefully now to see them as being loving, okay? So here's what we're saying. When in verse uh, seven, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. So again, Paul's writing to believers in Rome and he's reminding them that they are loved by God. And this is true of every born again Christian. You are the called of Jesus Christ and you are the beloved of God, okay? So now we're asking the question, what does this mean? And what I'm saying to you is we need to actually enlarge our vision of the love of God. Calvinistic people are often accused of shrinking God's love to only apply to a select few. Therefore, it's not as valuable. And that perturbs me. And I'm going to explain why I think that the correct biblical view of God's love for his own ought to magnify and expand our appreciation of the fact that we are, if you're in Christ, loved by God. So remember, God's love is not primarily focusing on you, but it's focusing on God glorifying himself in saving lost and dying sinners like you. In me, right? This does not mean that God does not love me. And this does not mean that God does not love the world. Of course, God loves the world. 
as even the most famous verse in the Bible clearly states, for God so loved the world. But for many people, the only way that they could ever conceive of the love of God is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And that, if that's all you ever focused on, it could even lead to universalism in some, in some uh, people's minds. That everybody's loved by God. We're all part of the world. God loves everybody the same. Therefore, he loves everyone the same way. And in one sense, John 3.16, God does love the world and all people in the world can benefit in a general way from his love. Jesus even talks about this and in Matthew chapter five, verses 44 and 45, see if you remember this, but I say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, we know that verse. That's a good, great encouragement and challenge. Pray for your enemies and for those who persecute you. Do you know why? Next verse, Matthew 5, 45, so that, so the reason Jesus says to pray for your enemies is so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So I, I believe that we are to love our enemies in a general sense is the same way that God loves unbelievers and even the non-elect in a general sense because this passage in Matthew is reminding us that God's love is broad and general as the rising sun and the falling rain. So in at least two ways, God's love is broad and general. He sustains the unbelieving world with sunshine and rain and he offers eternal life at the cost of his son to any and all who believe. So we're just saying if, if we're called to pray for our enemies, it's because God also shows his love for the world by sending the sun and the rain. Now, is that all that Paul means in Romans 1-7 when he says to all who are in Rome who are loved by God? Is he talking about the broad view of love? Like God so loved the world? Is that what Paul intends to communicate in Romans 1-7? Or, I would suggest to you, doesn't this sound like he's saying, among all the people who live in Rome... I am writing to the ones who are truly loved by God. In other words, doesn't it sound like he's saying that those who are called by God to belong to Jesus Christ are also loved by God in a special way, not that they are loved generically, but that they are actually loved specifically. And I don't think that Paul wants us to miss this point in Romans 1, 7. I don't think that it would be accurate to say from verse 7 that God calls me beloved because he loves everybody in the same way that he loves everybody in the world and I'm part of everybody, so that's how he loves me. That's not what verse 7 means. Paul is saying here, I'm writing to all of the beloved of God who are in Rome. He doesn't say I'm writing that everybody in Rome is beloved, but it's those who are beloved by God. Those are the called ones of Jesus Christ. Remember earlier I said that I wanna enlarge our vision of the love of God. I don't wanna shrink it. And so we must understand that God loves the called of Jesus Christ with a special and a saving love. God is not less loving because he only loved the world in a general way. I believe that God holds out love to the whole world, but he chooses his bride. 
Like I might say to you, church, I love the church, but I'm married to Lisa who sat here in the first service. I have a special love for her. She's my bride. So I love the church, but there's my, my own bride I love in a different way. God loves the world, but his own love for his elect ones is magnified, not because it's generic, because it's specific to his bride. He called his bride, the church, from eternity past. And so this love isn't just potential, but it's a permanent love. And this is the kind of love that Paul's talking about, I believe, in verse 7. It's the same kind of love that Paul shares with us in Romans 8, 35 through 39. Turn, turn there with me, if you will. Another well-known passage just where you can see this kind of love, the magnificent specificity of this love of God, Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... Skip down to verse 37. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what I'm trying to point to in this passage, notice what keeps us from being separated from the love of Christ. We are kept from separation, verse 37, through him who loved us. And the reason given is that we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Or to put it simply and bluntly, the love of God keeps us from being separated from the love of Christ. Will the called of Jesus Christ be separated from him? No. Why? Because God loves us. The faithful love of God triumphs in preserving his own. This is not the general love of God that offers eternal life to the world, nor is it the creational love of God that causes the sun and the rain even to fall upon his enemies. This is the love of God for his bride, for his chosen people, for the church. He calls us from death to life and he keeps us from falling away. What I'm saying to you is it is a wonderful, amazing thing that we can never exhaust pondering what's meant by those who are loved by God. Not only that, but your next blank says we're called to be saints. We're called to be saints. There in the middle of verse 7, we're loved by God. I'm saying that's a specific, saving, elect kind of love, and we're called to be saints. The question is often asked, well, am I a saint or am I a sinner? I mean, all, all human beings are sinners because we're born in sin, but not all human beings are saints, according to the Bible. Only believers are saints, right? A saint is not someone who has done wonderful things. It's not someone who's been deemed a saint by a certain church or organization. The word saint here in the original language is the word hagios. Literally, it means sacred, physically pure, morally blameless, religious, ceremonially consecrated, or holy. In the context of the New Testament, saints are those who belong to the body of Christ, who have been saved by grace through faith. In other words, saint is another word for a Christian. A true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ 
can be and should be and is referred to as a saint. Saints are not born saints. They become saints when they're born again. And because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are all in need of spiritual rebirth without which we will continue in our sinful state through all eternity. But God, in his great mercy and grace, has provided the only means for turning a sinner into a saint, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so when we confess our need for a savior from sin and accept his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, we become saints. Now, the reason I think this is important is because too many times we like to say something like, well, I'm just a sinner. And part of me is like, I can understand that. And there's a little bit of humility in that. But there's also some excuse in that. Oh, well, I mean, nobody's perfect. I'm a sinner. Oh, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And it's like, why do you keep saying that? How about you confess your sin, recognize you've been saved and forgiven through your confession, and that you are a saint. The Bible refers to you far more in the New Testament as a saint than it ever does as a sinner. The most famous reference to the sinner would be Paul's, I'm the chief of sinners. So I can appreciate what he's saying there, reminding us of what God brought him out of. But he's not using it as an excuse of why he continues to sin, which is how we typically use it. Well, I'm a sinner. It's like, no, you should say, I am a saint called out by God for the Lord Jesus Christ to be holy and blameless. And I still struggle and fall into sin. God, forgive me. Please forgive me for sinning in that way. That, that's my fault for sinning in that way. And we got to understand there's a special thing here of God calling us a saint. And I think it even comes out of Old Testament imagery where there were several things divinely set apart, which is part of what the word saint means, to be set apart. And in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of things set apart. Do you remember what they were? The tabernacle set apart, the temple set apart, they're particularly the furnishings of the temple with the Ark of the Covenant to be set apart, the Holy of Holies set apart. They're all set apart to him. The tribe of Levi was to be set apart as his people. The tithes and offerings of the people of Israel were also set apart for God. The word holy in the Old Testament, kadosh, refers to a person's being set apart by God from the world and unto himself. The Old Testament saint was in this way made holy and righteous. Whether you are under the old or the new covenant, we need to know that as saints, that we are the holy ones of God. So under the new covenant, such things as the temple, the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the Ark of the Covenant, the tribe of Levi, these holy things, these things that were set apart, no longer exist. Instead, God's only true holy things on earth today are his people. That's why we don't have any relics as a Protestant church. There's no object that's holy today. Only people can be holy. Only people are set apart. And he has sovereignly and graciously set us apart for himself through Christ and for his own glory to the point that we got to understand that we are the new temple of God and the new priesthood of God and we are that as his church. He says so, the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul, the pen of the apostle in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 
1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And verse nine of that same chapter in 1 Peter 2 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I'm just saying there's value in us referring to ourselves in the way that God refers to us who are in Christ as we are his saints. And maybe something about that mentality will also raise up a responsibility that you and I have not to defile God's temple, but to know God's spirit lives in us and that we are his temple. And so we are to be set apart. We are to be different. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are as the church, a holy nation. And so as, as Christians, we're loved by God, beginning of verse 7. We're called to be saints, middle of verse 7. And in the end of verse 7, we read, your next blank here, we are recipients of grace and peace. It's true today that the believers in Rome, us today, all those of us in Christ, we are recipients of grace and peace. I also think that as Paul's using the word saint to refer to the New Testament believer, that there's something about grace and peace that we could see in the Old Testament that he's bringing into the New Testament. And I'm talking here about Aaron's blessing in the Old Testament, which was a prayer that God would be both gracious to his people and give them peace. Remember that from Numbers chapter six, verse 24 through 26, where it says, the Lord bless you and keep you and the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So now we're seeing grace and peace, just like the word saint was used in the Old Testament now to refer to the New Testament saint, grace and peace for the Israelites under Aaron's blessing are now for the church. We receive grace, we receive peace. And so this similar terminology being used by Paul to proclaim grace and peace to the believer, I think really represent his major purpose in writing the letter. Grace is emphasizing the gift of God justifying sinners and peace is emphasizing the reconciliation between holy God and sinful man and the reconciliation between believing Jew and believing Gentile who are both in the body of Christ which is why Paul says here in verse 7 that that we are all he's referring to all of us He's referring to anybody. The you here is a plural you. It can mean anybody. Paul sends greetings to them all earlier at the letter and at the end of the letter. Paul gives thanks to them all, regardless of their ethnicity. Since loved, called, and saints were often Old Testament references to Israel, it seems probable that Paul deliberately uses these same words to indicate that all believers are in Christ. So we just see it's a beautiful thing showing us where the emphasis is on all those who are in Christ. It's a beautiful benediction, verse 7 is, for these first seven verses. And we see that the only people who can truly receive these blessings are those who are in Christ. Only they can truly call God their father. Only they've been adopted into his family through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the called ones and only the ones who are truly loved can experience the love of God through Christ. And so let me just ask you as we close our message for this morning, are you a saint or are you a sinner? And I don't mean, do you just struggle with the nomenclature as a Christian? Should I refer to myself as saint or sinner? I'm asking you fundamentally, are you a sinner this morning? And if so, do you understand that only God can draw you to himself? And he actually does so through the general call. 
And as I've preached and proclaimed the gospel this morning, maybe God is drawing your heart and you might think you can resist, but eventually you will give in and you will want to. And that could be even happening in your heart today. And so before we end our service, after we take the Lord's table and sing a final song, we'll have a few people standing over here. And if you want to talk about maybe that God's calling you out of darkness into light this very day, we would love to talk to you about the gospel truths that bring sinners into sainthood. And with that in mind, just to take home for the rest of us this morning, uh, how does the understanding, that first blank there under the take-home section, how does understanding the differences between the effective call and the general call aid you in your evangelism. I think it would be healthy to just kind of review some of the things that were pointed out there and that could aid you in your own evangelism. Number two, how has this message helped you better understand what it means to be loved by God? When you think of the love of God from a biblical point of view, is it shrinking down or is it being expanded with its depth and its value and its beauty? Or number three, do you think of yourself more as a saint or as a sinner? We discussed that a little bit. And how will your view shape how you live? This is the purpose of the gospel, to bring clarity, to remind us that we're called, and to do it all for the sake of his name. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to just spend a little time here in verses 6 and 7, reflecting on beautiful truths that reverberate, reverberate throughout uh, the book of Romans and throughout the Bible, and certainly hopefully become clearer to us as Christians about what the Bible says about us as blood-bought sons and daughters of the King. Help us to be faithful to our calling. Help us to be faithful saints who live a holy life before you. And I pray those who don't know you would be drawn by God through the gospel into a new relationship with a new heart. I pray that you would bless the remainder of our time here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.